up on today's show, a number of environmentalist groups are planning to sue the Premier of Alberta for comments he made following the Allen Inquiry release. They say it was defamation. What's going on in BC? How do these protests spark up again? And when it comes to China and the treatment of some of their most prominent citizens, it sends a message. Well, a coalition, uh, a number of environmental groups, at least eight of them, have come together and are threatening to sue the premier of our province, Jason Kenney, for defamation. Uh, They say he must retract and apologize for statements that he made uh, following the release of the Allen Inquiry, the public report into the province's oil and gas industry. Now, in that report, it did say nobody has broken the law. These groups, which include Dogwood Initiative, Environmental Defense Canada, Sierra Club Canada, Greenpeace Canada, Uh, The list goes on. As I said, there's at least eight say that he um, didn't uh, follow the letter of the law when it comes to that inquiry, and he overstepped and said some things that are defamatory. So let's get to the bottom of this. We're going to chat with Cameron Jeffries now, a law professor from the University of Alberta. Professor, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Hi, Shay. I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, So basically what they're saying is, they haven't filed the lawsuit yet. At this point, it's a letter saying you've got until the 30th to retract and apologize or we're going to see you. Is that how these typically play out rather than going straight to court action? Yeah, you can you can see this play out in a, in a defamation lawsuit. I mean, because the, the goal there of, of putting someone or the premier's office in this instance on notice would be giving someone an opportunity to retract their comments and issue a formal apology, right? To to walk back the language um, that had been utilized. And I think that, you know, that's uh, part part of the objective here, right? Because you have, um, I think, a broader context that, that has kind of informed uh, this uh, this request and, and obviously the tensions that are between um, the organizations that you mentioned and then uh, the government. I mean, this goes back to the, the context of the, the Fight Back campaign yep. in 2019, the war room, right, uh, escalating rhetoric um, that's been utilized in, in different contexts, including on social media. So I think that, you know, part of it would be looking for a bit of a walk back on uh, the language that was used. And if that walk back isn't done or if an apology doesn't occur then um you know we'll we'll they'll they'll test the uh legality of the statements and, and take it to some formal some formal action yeah it doesn't sound like they should hold their breath waiting for an apology in a response uh, kenny spokesman said quote we're not surprised that an organization which routinely pursues political activism through the courts is again threatening legal action we will of right. course vigorously respond in court if and when necessary so it doesn't sound like they're even the least bit no, this. no, and I mean, I I think that cuts both ways, right? That that comment cuts both ways, and you have, um, you know, you have a government that also hasn't been afraid to use the courts, right? You mm-hmm. had the constitutional challenge to the greenhouse gas pricing act, which they lost, and then you have a constitutional challenge ongoing to the impact assessment act, so another piece of uh, environmental legislation. So, um, you know, that that's part of the that's part of the game there too, right? Is you've had a government that hasn't been shy to be litigious uh, against environmental um, uh, legislation in different contexts. So I think that's uh, part of what we can expect here. When we talk about defamation lawsuits, they're not all that clear-cut. They can get pretty complicated, right? I mean, you can come out and say, yeah, we said these things, but we're allowed to based on this, that, and the other. They're not... I mean, there's a lot of gray area when it comes to defamation lawsuits. So, yeah, so that's right. I mean, I think that the the legal test for what qualifies as defamatory is pretty straightforward. So 
in terms of uh, looking to to what the Supreme Court has said, we're looking for words that are defamatory uh, in the sense that they would lower uh, an individual's reputation or an organization's reputation in the eyes of the public. Uh, then you're looking for words that refer to the organization or individual in question, and then those words being published. So were they put out there, communicated to more than one person? Um, and so that test itself is, is pretty straightforward, but because defamation is trying to walk a fine line between protecting reputations but also guarding free speech, right. which is critically important in our society, there's a number of defenses. And I think the defenses is where it, it gets into the gray zone. Um, and those defenses will depend on the situation. So for a government official, uh, an elected individual, their defenses you know, would be different if they were speaking in the legislature, uh, where things are privileged, versus when they're outside of the legislature and they're speaking to media or posting on uh, social media. And in that instance, you have really two defenses that are available in this sort of context. You'd be arguing that it was justified mm -hmm. in that the statements were substantially true, so that they were factually based, right? Yep. And then uh, the other defense, and this is the one where I think um, it can get a little bit bogged down in a situation like this, is whether or not it was a fair comment. Um, and that, that, yeah, that has a, a fairly lengthy um, number of elements that have to be proved. Um, and then I think the key one, if you're looking at this scenario, would be, uh, is it a comment, so a deduction, an opinion, right, an inference on behalf of the Premier that's based in fact? Um, because it has to have a factual foundation uh, in order to to be a fair comment. And I think that would be uh, part of the issue that would be live here. Right. Now, if they can cross all those thresholds, get over all those bars, then they have to prove that it in some way hurt them. It has damaged them. I mean, that's the yeah. next step, right? Yeah, that there's been some harm. Um, I mean, often some of the damage can be presumed because you have... Right, you have defamatory language, which in and of itself is is harmful if it's uh, having that effect to your reputation. And in this instance, um, my understanding is the environmental groups are saying, "Hey, we operate on good faith, right? Yeah. We operate on uh, the goodwill and and in many instances, generosity of the public." And in this instance, that could have a, uh, you know, an, an impact on our ability to operate or carry out our mandate. And ultimately, whenever you're talking about a case like this, especially one involving government, any kind of resolution would likely take years and years and years to get, right? Yeah, I mean, we could be looking at uh, uh, multiple years to work its way through the court system, right? And, um, I mean, there's lots of delays right now. There's, there's likelihood of appeal. Um, so, yeah, you could be looking at mul multiple years uh, for there to be a resolution. Now, I'm not sure that that would necessarily dissuade an organization or a group of organizations that were just put through a multiple-year process with numerous delays uh, that didn't have the opportunity to participate formally um, in the Allen report, right? Where yeah. They were ultimately cleared. So I'm not sure that, that, you know, a lengthy process would necessarily deter organizations that were just put through a lengthy process either. Yeah, it'll be an interesting one to follow. Uh, thanks so much, Cameron. Appreciate your time. Yeah, no, great. Thanks for reaching out. You bet. That is Cameron Jeffries, who is a law professor at the University of Alberta and giving us the legality. Yeah, defamation is an interesting one uh, because there's a number of different components that have to be met uh, in order for an action to be successful. You have to prove that the comments were defamatory. You have to prove that meaningful harm was done. I mean, it, bottom line, um, don't expect an apology from the Premier or a retraction of his statements by the November 30th deadline. He'll be more than willing to let this go to court. 
and as we heard from the uh, law professor, if it does get to court, it would likely be years and years and years of legal wrangling before there's any kind of resolution here. But um, the environmental groups say they can prove that there was damage done. Um, in an email from Keith Stewart of Greenpeace, um, he says, some of our activists have had to turn their social media accounts over to a friend to report, block, and delete the hateful comments and commenters. Prominent climate advocates regularly get death threats. And so do I. But I haven't sued anybody about it. Um, I don't know how far this will go. I think basically what they're saying, and they come out and say it in pretty clear language, this promised lawsuit, the goal of it, is intended to stop political leaders from using their office as a bully pulpit. They say, quote, I think it's really dangerous to have senior political leaders doing this kind of thing against civil society, and we just want it to stop. So that's the goal of this lawsuit. And it can go away if the premier retracts and, uh, as we said, you know, apologizes for the comments that he made. Basically, they're saying the inquiry itself found that no laws were broken, and the premier didn't follow that rule of law, that letter of the law, in his response to these findings. So we'll see where it goes. Will it end up in court? Probably. Will it ever be resolved in our lifetime? I don't know. Once you get these kind of cases into a court of law, they can take a very, very, very long time. Okay, let's turn our attention to the situation in British Columbia. The pipeline protests, the injunctions, the arrests. Um, it, it, it's been pretty volatile for the past week or two. Let's get the details on what's happening there. We're going to chat with Amanda Follett-Hosgood, who is a reporter with the TIE. Uh, Amanda, thanks for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, good morning, Shay. So why don't we just... Um, sort of go back to the beginning here. We've, we're talking about a pipeline um, running through Wet'suwet'en lands, largely. Um, the interesting thing to me is First Nations in the region are all on board, all along this route, have signed on, so it's hereditary chiefs that are opposed, right? Do I have it correct? Um, m- more or less, yeah. So we've got a, a quarter of the entire route. The route itself is 670 kilometers, and a quarter of that passes through Wet'suwet'en territory, which is which is where all the conflict yes. has been happening. Um, and band councils along the route have signed benefit agreements with um, TC Energy, which is the, the parent company of Coastal GasLink. And those have, you know, those have been pointed to as support for the project. It's, it's basically just a financial stake in the project. Um, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, however, have opposed the project. And I think uh, one thing that's important to note is that these band councils were formed um, to govern reserves. And these, uh, these pi- this pipeline doesn't actually pass through any reserves. So wh- while I think it's entirely appropriate that local communities benefit from the project, right. uh, the argument from the hereditary chiefs has been that they have jurisdiction over the, the broader territory. Right. So now how, what, what, what's the resolution on this? If you're the company or if you're the RCMP or you're the government that's trying to come to a resolution, I mean, I know it's been through the courts, but who ultimately has authority over this stretch of the pipeline? You know, I think that's the root of the problem yeah. here. Um, yeah. Um, Wet'suwet'en land title has never been has never been sorted out. So in, in 19, 
97. And when we talk about the beginnings of this conflict, we can go back decades to a 10-year uh, court battle between um, the the Wet'suwet'en Nation and their neighbors, the Gitsan Nation. They they collaboratively, collaboratively fought for their Indigenous title in the court system. And in 1997, the Supreme Court of Canada acknowledged that their title still existed and acknowledged that they had a claim to the land, but left it up to the nation and the provincial and the federal government to determine what that should look like. And so that process now is dragged on for, we're coming up on the 24-year anniversary of that president-setting decision, and still we don't have a formal agreement between those, those different governments about what what-to-what and title looks like. And then the frustration is that in the meantime, you know, the province has continued to um, issue these permits and then the injunction that allowed the police to go in was issued based on those permits and right. it's being a permitted project. And still the hereditary chiefs are saying, well, well, wait, we, we, this is our territory and we haven't approved this project. Yeah, so you've got the hereditary chiefs in their position. The law and the injunctions and everything at this point are taking the opposite um stance and saying, okay, we've adjudicated this, the the First Nations have signed on. So that battle will continue to rage on. I think, why did it flare up in the last couple of weeks? What was the development where we saw this? I mean, it's happened before, um, but why did it come to prominence again, you know, two weeks ago? Yeah, things sort of started, things got, I'm sure everybody remembers February 2020, yeah. when this conflict was leading the headlines for, you know, a month or two, and there was five days of arrests uh, on the Maurice West Forest Service Road, where all this is taking place. Um, and then a couple of things happened. First of all, the Wet'suwet'en sat down with the province and federal government. Um, they came to basically an agreement to continue working on an agreement. So they, they picked up where they left off after the 1997 Supreme Court decision and, and those negotiations fell off. Um, but that didn't address the, the pipeline. That was to continue working on the broader issue of Indigenous rights and title. Um, the, the pipeline issue kind of sat there and continued to simmer. We went into the pandemic. Everything shut down. Um, people were still out on the territory. RCMP were still patrolling, but, um, but there weren't these big conflicts. And so what shifted a couple of months ago is that Coastal GasLink is preparing to drill under the, the Maurice River, um, known to the Wet'suwet'en as Wet'suwet'en. It's a very important um, watershed through this, through this area. And there's a lot of concern from the nation around the environmental impacts of drilling under the river. So that was Coastal GasLink's plan for this fall. Uh, late September, the Gidimben clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation on, on their portion of the territory established a camp and a roadblock at the site where Coastal GasLink intends to drill. So again, you know, RCMP have been in there. There were a couple of arrests, but it's, it's kind of gone under the radar. There hasn't been a lot of reporting on that until um, a week and a half ago, um, Hereditary Chief Wass, who is clan chief for Gidimden clan, uh, said, okay, enough's enough, we're just going to shut down the road. Yep. So that happened That happened a week ago Sunday. And, um, yeah. Uh, and that's uh, in violation of an injunction that the courts have put in. They're not, I mean, this has already been through the courts, and they've been told, stay away, don't interfere, you'll be breaking the law if you do, correct? Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, nothing's that simple. I think there's an acknowledgement. Right. There's an acknowledgement by the courts that this is Wet'suwet'en territory, and that Wet'suwet'en people have the right to be on the territory doing their, you know, their cultural activities and hunting and trapping. Um, but 
they uh, they stop at the point where they're blocking access to the pipeline route. And yeah, yeah. And and that's where the arrests started. And I know there was a number yeah. of I mean, even some journalists were swept up in that and and yeah. had to spend some time uh, behind bars before getting released on Monday morning. So what is the situation there now? Is there still tension? Is there still uh, incidents happening? I haven't heard anything much in the past couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So yeah, we had arrests on, uh, and, and I think an important, maybe an important difference this time around as opposed to previous police actions was that this time the Maurice Forest Service Road was blocked, and this was the third large-scale police action to happen on the Maurice over the last uh, few years. Um, but this time around, two coastal gas link work camps were, you know, construction that was in full full swing and those work camps were occupied and the company said that there were actually 500 people cut off um, from supplies. So, um, you know, there was lots of discussions about how to address that. Could another road be put in? Could there be, you know, helicopter access for supplies? Uh, I know the hereditary chiefs were in the process of setting up a meeting with the province to figure out a solution. And then just as that was happening, a plane load of RCMP landed here uh, in Smithers, where I live, and the police action began began, uh, Thursday morning. So Thursday morning, they began clearing the road. I was told that I traveled out there that day and was told by an officer that their objective was to open up the route to the camps and... um, and they would arrest anyone who was in their way. So that day, 15 people were taken into custody. One journalist was, was released the same day. Um, and by the end of the day, the road was open and supplies were flowing into camp. Um, but it still left this remaining camp that was uh, established in September, not blocking that main access road, but blocking access to the CGL work site. So Friday, another round of arrests. Um, more people taken into custody, and, and that included two two journalists um, who have been reporting on this for years now. Uh, and they all spent yeah three three days in uh, yeah. in jail. So Monday they, morning. Uh, yeah, they were released. Uh, the journalists were were released on Monday, um, and then some of the others were released Monday, and and then yesterday. So everybody's been released now. And as for where we stand, I mean. I, I don't think anything substantially has changed, right. unfortunately. We're, we're still dealing with the with the rights and title. Um, what's the wet and hereditary leadership still opposes the project. Uh, it's it's hard to know what will what will come next. Is there anything? I mean, like you say, that seems to be the the crux of the matter here. Um, is that before the courts? Is I mean, is there anybody working on trying to resolve? Because if you if you're the company trying to put your pipeline through and you think you've done what you need to do, but then there's yeah. this other. I mean. Is there anybody working on how to resolve what seems to be the main point of friction here? It's a good question. I mean, obviously, there's this larger talk about rights and title, but yeah. um, Premier Horgan has been very clear that, you know, BC was the first jurisdiction in Canada to implement the, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People a couple of years ago. Um, and then and then we also have this pipeline issue. And he's been very clear that, that uh, the DRIPA and the... Um, 
the talks currently happening with the nation are these are forward-looking things. So it it doesn't address the pipeline issue. The pipeline is now fifteen more than fifty percent complete. Um, construction is more than fifty percent complete. Um, you know, I know that there have been obviously this has been a setback and there's been financial challenges, but I I don't think that Coastal GasLink is going anywhere. And at the same time, obviously the Wet'suwet'en yeah. who have occupied the territory for thousands of years, they're not going anywhere either. So it's you know, uh, the courts have released everybody on the condition that they that they not be blocking access, that they abide by the rules of the injunction. Um, other than that, I'm not sure what can be done to address the, the current issue. Yeah, it's it's a mess. Uh, great, great backgrounder and uh, bringing us the education about what's going on, Amanda. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the interest. It's nice to chat with you, Shay. Yeah, we'll do this again. Um, that is Amanda Follett-Hosgood, who's a reporter with the TIE, and as you hear, she's based in Smithers, British Columbia, and she's covering this situation with the wet sweat. And I don't know what... If, 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 you're, if you're the group putting the pipeline through, what, what are you supposed to do at this point? Because you've gone and you've met with First Nation leadership all along the route of the pipeline and come to agreements with them. And... They support it. The elected council of the Wet'suwet'en Nation and the others nearby along the route have agreed to the project. Then you've got the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs that are opposed to the project. So if you're trying to, you know, put the pipeline through, if you're industry, you've done what you're supposed to do on what, who, who do you negotiate with? Yesterday, we had an awesome interview with Eric Morse, a former Canadian diplomat who was involved in the boycott of the Moscow Games in 1980, and we were discussing the situation around the Chinese Olympics coming up in Beijing uh, next February. And uh, once again, there's talk of boycotts, diplomatic boycotts, and all the rest following um, what can only be called the disappearing of a Chinese tennis star who made some allegations about a high-ranking Chinese government official and um, then vanished for a couple of weeks. We've seen some limited appearances since then, but it's raising a lot of questions, and we always talk about human rights and, and the behavior of the Chinese government and people really raising the alarm once again. So we're going to get into that and get some more details on what happened there and what kind of message it sends. We're going to chat with Ian Bennett, who is the Assistant Director for the Paul and Marsha Wythe Center on Contemporary China at Princeton University. Ian, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, I just want to say my cousin Mike in Edmonton says hello. He loves your show. Oh, really? Mike in Edmonton. Hi, Mike. How did you end up in Princeton <laughs> with a cousin in Edmonton? That's a long way away. Uh, uh, we originated from Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, he was born in Canada. I have a ton of relatives in Edmonton. So there My you other go. cousin Bernie says that uh, the Calgary Flames are doing very well in the Western Conference right now. So. They are doing extremely well in the Western Conference. They are. They're, uh, they're a good team, a really good hockey team. Oilers are doing pretty well, too. It's good times for Alberta hockey fans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we take a look at the situation <laughs> regarding um, Peng, um, just, let's get into mm-hmm. the background here. Basically, she made some pretty damning allegations about a, a former high-ranking member of the Chinese government, correct? That's right. Um, so I can, uh, so apparently they had a relationship. It, it's been at least 10 years. Um, we don't know how it, it initially started, but, um, a few years ago, she was, uh, talked into having sex with him again. Um, and she, in her, uh, now deleted social media post, uh, on, uh, the Chinese, uh, social media site Weibo, 
Um, she said that the wife kept watch. Um, she was crying the entire time. Um, and she acknowledged in the post that, you know, what she was saying was dangerous. Um, and she expected that it would be deleted. Um, and that's what happened. The post was almost immediately deleted by the um, Chinese government censorship team. And she was basically disappeared by the Chinese government for speaking out against this official whose name is John Gali. Um, and, which means that she spoke out indirectly against the Chinese government. Okay, now when we talk about this disappearing, um, I mean, it's not uncommon in China. Right? Basically what happens is she just vanished. Now she resurfaced after intense international pressure, but this practice of disappearing yes. someone, it's not new, is it? No, um, it happened to Jack Ma. He's the yep. Alibaba find, uh, founder. Uh, he, he was also the richest man in China. Uh, he was disappeared for criticizing the uh, Chinese government for its financial industry, management of the financial financial industry. Um, subsequently, his uh, aunt uh, group IPO was canceled, and then his assets were uh, disassembled and given to government um, government entities. So now he's no longer the richest man in China. Uh, Fan Bingbing, she's a she's an internationally known movie star. I think she starred in X Files. Um, she was disappeared for being too immodest. Um, it, uh, you know, her her glamorous lifestyle right. wasn't in line with Chinese socialist values. And then, you know, they trumped up a charge of it was legitimate of, of tax evasion. She had, um, you know, two contracts. One was the what her, she was actually paid, and then the other one is what they gave to the Chinese government or the Chinese IRS um, um, for tax purposes. So when, what the, the, it seems to me it's more than just punishing the person involved. It sends a message too, right? Like if you step out of line, if you're critical of the Chinese regime, these kind of consequences await you. Is it, is it more about sending a message than punishing in some cases? Um, yes, it is a message, especially it, it's a domestic message, not necessarily yeah. towards the international community. But um, it tells people that they can't step out of line um, and that they are they're saying the Chinese government is saying that no matter how high you get, no matter how, how famous you are, you're not immune to the reach of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, the other message that is being sent is that the welfare of the Chinese Communist Party is more important than the welfare of the Chinese people. Um, activism in general has become incredibly difficult uh, to those who are seeking things like gender equality. Um, and freedom of speech rights, uh, they're being silenced by the government and thrown in jail. Um, there was a recent journalist, a citizen journalist, she's actually a lawyer, uh, she was covering the, the Wuhan um, uh, COVID outbreak, um, and she's been jailed for the crime of picking quarrels and causing trouble, wow. which, <laughs> I'm a lawyer, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a crime. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know they're using these. They're using law as a weapon against the people, and uh, it's silencing the people um, for for the welfare of the Chinese Communist Party, basically. And um, you and know, that's the message. And, and the thing is, like you're talking about Jack Ma, you're talking about this international mm-hmm. tennis star. So it's pretty clear that nobody is beyond the reach of the Chinese government. And you know, fame, fortune doesn't matter what it is. There's no protection if you step out of line. That's correct. Um, I think it even happened to um, the other movie star, Jackie Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan, yeah. I think his name is. 
Um, I think it it happened to him as well. You know, when they become that rich and powerful, um, they are used as examples because, you know, they want to show the Chinese people that the Chinese Communist Party is in control, not, you know, yeah. not these people. So, so why um, did she reemerge? Why did she show up at that state-sponsored youth tennis event? I mean, was it the intense international pressure, or um, what, what's your thoughts around it that? Was, it was, um, but I think it was a very naive attempt um, by the propaganda machine in China to show that, oh, she's okay. You yeah. know, here she is. She's having dinner with friends. Here she is talking, you know, it was a screenshot of um, her talking to the, uh, the, the director of the um, International Olympic Team, our Olympic Committee. Um, you know, here she is, you know, talking to this, uh, I forget his name, um, talking to him on, on a video call. And, you know, she, she claims in, in the video call, of which we don't have a transcript, or uh, a recording, um, you know, she's okay, she's safe, but she wants everyone to respect her privacy, which hmm. is a very odd thing to say, it given is. what she had done. I mean, she made a very public claim of being sexually abused um, by by this um, former high-level official. Um, why, why would she want her privacy respected suddenly right now? That makes no sense. Um. Um, Let's try and, and I don't know if you can answer this question because we had a discussion yesterday with a former diplomat from uh, Canada's government that um, said, you know what, by sending our athletes over there, we're putting them at risk of this, especially if we go to a diplomatic boycott. I mean, we know we've had Canadians imprisoned in China uh, on trumped up charges mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's not just Chinese citizens that can end up, you know, swept into the system like that. Do you think there is a risk holding the Olympics there that some of these high profile athletes may fall victim to this kind of activity? Um, to smaller nations, uh, I think that might be a problem uh, because, you know, China has been using trade as a weapon against yeah. Australia, for example, uh, many smaller nations um, that, you know, in, in retaliation for the, the Huawei um, executive, you know, they imprisoned two Canadians. Um, unfortunately, that. It's a possibility. I wouldn't say that it's a very strong possibility because there's a lot of attention on the Olympics, right? Oh, huge, um, huge. So, yeah. So it's unlikely that, you know, the Chinese government would be so inept to to jail a bunch of uh, uh, Olympic athletes, Yeah. you know, on trumped up charges. But it, it's, you know, it's not a zero percent chance either. You know, when we when we had some of these situations, it really seemed like the Chinese government didn't care what the international community said or thought. It didn't really matter to them. It's a little bit different with Peng. Um, so they are at least somewhat swayed by international pressure, at least if there's an Olympics looming. Is there anything the international community can do to try and fight back against this kind of activity? Um, so we need to stop uh, kind of enabling China in the sense... Um, you know, we buy their products, we go to their Olympics, um, you know, we continue to do uh, trade and commerce with them. Um, I think the reason why this situation is different is because the Women's uh, Tennis Association, they've come out and said that they will pull out of China if, you know, if a, no, unless an objective investigation takes place without, cens- without censorship. So that's the difference, right? Yeah. Um, there's... 
they've, they've placed economics at stake, and China is reacting to that. Um, it's And also, too, um, China's international stature is linked to how well its athletes do in international form, right? So it, it's beginning to see that, uh, you know, its actions are linked to all these other things. It's very complicated, right? There, yeah. It's not just, uh, you know... I do this, you do that. It's um, There's a lot more at stake and at play. I think they're beginning to realize that, especially with this. And now that, you know, the United States is saying that they'll do a, a diplomatic boycott of uh, the Olympics, they're not going to send, you know, President Biden. Um, a larger step that uh, governments could take is just boycotting the Olympics altogether. Right. Uh, I know that puts... That's very. That would be very unfortunate to some athletes who, you know, this is their only chance to go to the Olympics and, and win a gold medal. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I find that very unlikely. I, I doubt governments will do that, especially to their own athletes who have been training for years and years to to go to the Olympics and hopefully win, you know, uh, a, a gold medal. But um, that would be a signal. That that would that would a send a message. Signal. Yes, uh, something like that. Um, you know, everyone can talk about Trump, but the trade war with China, it has, it has legitimate reasons, <laughs> um, you know, to, to sanction China for, for intellectual property violations oh, sure. or inequitable trade uh, relationships. And so on. There were reasons for it. Um, the, the way he did it, of course, that's, you know, that that's probably what is is you know what is so uh, distasteful to everyone, but um, those kind of things matter. You know, um, sanctioning China, pulling out trade, um, uh, putting high tariffs on Chinese goods. Uh, those are the things that that can have an impact. It's just a matter of national willingness. Yeah. However to do those things because they're painful. Look at what Australia is suffering right now. Oh you know, yeah. They're paying a huge price. Millions of dollars. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And you know, in Canada, it's, and China is a huge trade partner with Canada too. So, you know, what's Canada going to do? Um, and those are very difficult political decisions to make. Um, I wouldn't want to be a politician right now. No. And, and we know it, they, just the, the economic might that they have. Yeah, and great insight. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. And um, uh, you guys be well. I hear it's like one degree Celsius there right now. Yeah, it is. It, it's, uh, we had freezing rain uh, through much of the central part of the province. We've got winter storm warnings in the mountain parks and wind warnings down south. So you're not missing anything. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Yan. Um but you know what? All in all, yeah, all those things are true. But the fact of the matter is, the forecast looks really good. I mean, well above average. So it's November in Alberta. The morning can be awful, and the afternoon can be beautiful, and that might be exactly how it's playing out right now. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.